We are going to be back in Mark. We're only going to be considering four verses today. So uh, it's a short passage of Scripture, but I can't promise you you're going to get out of here early. Just throw in that disclaimer. But we do want to take a look at the Word of God. And um, I'm not going to be addressing this this whole situation, I'm just going to be kind of setting it up for the next man that comes along next Sunday. But what we're going to be talking about is a divided kingdom. Uh, Jesus is, as Mark always is, this is about him being a servant. He's a man of action. Uh, We continue, and he was here, and he did this, and he went there, and he did that, and, 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 and. And that's the way this whole gospel of Mark flows. He's a man of action. He's a man of service. He's, he's, he's marching quickly through his time here on earth, but he's going to be confronted. He's called his disciples unto himself, and I, I hope you guys can remember at least some of what he said last week, but um, I know he did bring out the thought that the multitudes are always there. The unnamed multitudes are always around. But then he gets specific and he names his disciples that he has called. And I think the wonderful, beautiful, awesome thing about that, their calling was not because of anything that they possessed. Their calling was not because their character was above and beyond any other human a group of human beings on this earth. In fact, they failed in many ways because the Bible says that he called Judas Iscariot who just happened to betray him so that he might be crucified. So, thank God for grace and mercy that he doesn't call the qualified. He equips the called. We're past this and now we're going to start off our text with another and. We're going to look at chapter 3 there in Mark in verse 20 through 23 this morning. It said, And the multitude cometh together again. They're, They're always around. The multitude's always around. So that they could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, They went out to lay hold on him, for they said, He is beside himself. And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. And he called them unto him and said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for each individual that has chosen to come this way. That God, uh, we might not leave here empty-handed and empty-hearted, but that we might leave here having received a blessing as well as a challenge to live our Christian faith out loud that the entire world may know that we serve a risen Savior, that He's in the world today, and that He is not benignly sitting aside and allowing anything to happen, that God, it's all going according to His great plan. 
And God, we want to be a part of that. So Lord, I ask you that you would fill our hearts and our minds with your word, that you would speak to us, and that God, that we would not only be hearers of the word, but we would be doers of the word. Thank you, Lord, for your saving grace. Thank you for mercy, Lord God. And I pray that you will use us this morning for your honor and glory. For it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So, as I said, we're going to be talking about a divided kingdom this morning, or Jesus brings up the thought, can Satan cast out Satan? Now, he made another statement in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 30 that I use all the time because it kind of does away with an inactive church member. I don't know about this church. I've, I've been mostly in Baptist, Southern Baptist churches all my life. Do y'all know anything about the infamous Southern Baptist letter? I've never seen my letter. But when I got saved and when I was baptized in the local church, I've got a letter with my name on it that I, I'm a member of a Baptist church in good standing. And we have on our rolls what we call inactive members and active members. That means somebody may have moved out of the country. That means somebody could have been made a profession of faith, been baptized, came two weeks, and you couldn't find them with a, with a search warrant. They've gone back to the world. They've left their first love. I, who knows, but they're considered inactive church members. Now, Scripture says, Jesus says, there is no such thing, Matthew 12, 30, as an inactive church member, because he said, he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. He who is not with me is against me, and he who gathers not with me scatters abroad. So I'm either actively drawing people to Christ, or by my very inaction, I'm actively driving people away from Christ, but I can't have this little warm, fuzzy view about my Christianity, that I'm just a, a trophy on a shelf collecting dust. That's just, that's just not the way this kingdom business works. So you and I are either actively drawing people to the Lord or we're actively drawing Him away. We need to take a look at this passage of Scripture, and we've got... We've got uh, four different characters in these four verses, and that's what we're going to take a look at today. The first thing that I noticed in this passage of Scripture is the multitude. In verse 20, it says, The multitude came together again. They could not so much as eat bread. Now, my first thought is this. The multitude always thinks differently than the individual. Without fail, without question, you can count on it. The mob mentality is far different from an individual. If you're, if you're part of a crowd, if you're at some assembly and there's thousands of people thronging around you, you think a little differently and you do things a little differently than you do if we were sit, to sit down one-on-one -on -one and have a conversation. Amen? Would you agree with me on that? See, that's what, that's what the federal government is allowing to go on in our own nation right now. They're letting the mob rule. See, I looked up that word in my concordance, multitude, 
Now, I don't know what it may say in your particular, the ESV, or I don't know how they worded. I didn't look it up this time. But it means a throng, and it also means the rabble. You ever heard that old term, the rabble? It's, it's kind of a derogatory term because it speaks of a lower class of citizen, right? If you're part of the rabble, that's probably, you know, you've heard of the Dixie Mafia. You've heard of the Chicago Mob. They're, they're not well known for doing benevolent things, are they? They're, they're known for their violence and their thieving, all, all those things, murder. I'm, I'm not accusing these people of anything. They, in fact, these people have come with great needs, and we're going to address that in just a moment. I'm not saying these people came to kill Jesus or that they came to hold a riot, or the, but at the same time, there is a certain presence when you're in a, in a big, huge group. You kinda, your inhibitions just kind of let go, and you just kind of do things differently. First thing I want to say about the multitude is that they are needy. They're very needy. You know, I am a barber, and the week of the winter storm, we were shut down for that whole week. We didn't, we didn't go into the shop. Now, now, get this picture. For two weeks before we shut down, we weren't really busy. We were sitting around, man... Our tools were gathering dust, kind of, and we were just kind of like, man, what are we going to do here? We may have to go out and get another job. We were shut down for a week. Fifty million people had to get their hair cut the following week that we were open. And they griped about it when they stuck their head in the door and there was a room full of people waiting to get their hair cut. It's amazing. But now, if you sit down and talk with them as an individual, they're all great. But when they stick their head in that door, you're supposed to have a chair open for them right then. And see, that's the way a lot of church folk are in America. It's not what can I do for my Lord, it's what can you and your church do for me. How can you benefit me? How can you get my agenda further down the road? See, we don't have that mentality in the church anymore where we're dying to self and we're marching to Zion. It's more like we're marching to Burger King, have it your way. You don't want pickles? Okay. You don't want tomatoes? All right, we'll kick them out. You don't want lettuce? Fine. You don't want to serve the Lord? Fine. Just come and sit on a pew. Occupy some space. Make it look good. The multitude's hard to please, y'all. I've done this a lot. I pastored two churches. And I, and I love every one of those people. I do. I can say that in all honesty. It's been a pure joy to serve, but sometimes, sometimes you want to do like Moses and hit that rock twice instead of speaking to it. And it kind of loses its glow after a while when you have people come and gripe to you about carpet and windows and the temperature in the sanctuary. Just dress in layers. Peel off or add on as you need. That's my theology. Amen. Let's just... Now don't peel off too much, but just dress in layers. It'll solve a lot of issues. You see, pe people are needy. And some of those things are legitimate needs. There's no doubt about that. 
Some of the needs that these people had were of the utmost importance. But now, I will say this, many of them probably came with that instant gratification thing instead of, I'm coming to worship the king. And also, I can know this too though, that Jesus loved them completely in spite of them. Even though I would dare say the majority of them came without really knowing what their true needs were, without prioritizing their true spiritual needs, He loved them anyway. Aren't you glad He does that? Aren't you glad He didn't kick you out for improper motivation? Or because you didn't come to Him with only a pure, unadulterated love for Him in your heart, that you came kind of wanting the benefits without wanting the benefactor. You know, the one, you want the goodies, but you just don't want the one who gives you all those things. You know, if I have Him, I have everything, right? Even if I have nothing, if I have Jesus, I have everything. That's kind of a little bit about the multitude there because it said they could not so much as they didn't even have time to sit down and have a meal have you ever been so busy and so bombarded with demands from your job or life your family that you didn't even have time to sit down and eat and it the pressure and the stress builds up but you know what Jesus was just doing what he loved to do and I can just imagine that even as demanding as it was, and even though he knew they didn't deserve it, he just kept going as long as he could until he just had to get away for a little while in his humanity and take a few moments off. But then it's right back into the crowd. The multitude always thinks differently than the individual. But now in verse 21, we need to take a look at his friends and his family. His friends and family cared for him, but they thought he was a fanatic. They thought he was crazy. Because they say here, it says here in verse 21, when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him. Let's put a straitjacket on him. Let's get him down to Pineville. He needs some psychiatric care. He's beside himself. He's crazy right now. He needs help. You know what I've found out about family and friends through the years? And, and, and I do not mean this ugly at, at all. I love my family. They will think if you're doing some worldly thing, if you work your way to the top of the company and become a multimillionaire, or you're a, a talented uh, sports figure you, and you make it to the professional leagues and you make millions of dollars or you do this or you do that or you write songs, you're a songwriter, you're a singer, you're an entertainer. We consider those things noble causes. Man, people give their lives away for these things and nobody thinks a thing about it. But you have somebody sell out for Jesus. What's our first thought in our mind? Man, that dude, is, he's crazy. He's a weirdo. Now, I love Jesus, but not like that. That's crazy. No, it's not. If I love Jesus with all my heart, I've already died to myself, and it doesn't, 
I don't mean to offend anyone here, but I don't give a fat mule what anyone thinks about me if I love Jesus and I put Him first. You can think I'm crazy all you want to, but I'm not going to stand before you on Judgment Day. I'm going to stand before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, a three times holy God, a thrice holy God, and I'm going to give an account of my life, and he, He's not going to say, Son, you were a little too fanatical about me. You should have dialed it back a little bit. Some of these same Baptist people that I pastored through the years, they were fanatical at ball games. Honey, LSU, their grandson was playing at All-Stars. They became ravenous beasts. But Jesus being offended at something, that, that, that didn't bother some of them a whole lot. Lost people living right down the road, that, that didn't bother them a whole lot. You see what we get passionate about? What we feel like is noble? What we feel like is really important? And you know what? Fifteen minutes after the end of that game, they're over there all playing together anyway. It's just the parents and the grandparents that get all fuzzed up and lose their religion. Amen? Yeah. We've been there, haven't we? I, I throw myself in there, hey. But we do. You see, his family and friends thought some of these other worldly pursuits, that, that would have been fine if he'd have done that. But he's out here... He's out here raising the dead and causing the blind to see and preaching these awesome sermons and His Word has power and authority and He's changing the whole landscape and He's going into the synagogues and they're like, this dude is nuts. We need to help him. As they say in Alabama, he needs help. They talk funnier than we do, y'all. But you know what? Friends and family can sometimes be too. And I, I hate to say this too because I love them all. They can be obstructionists to what God wants to do in your life. My sweet little mama, I'd do anything in the world for her because she was the rock in my life when I was growing up. I could always count on my mama. And I remember my mama reading the Bible to me when I was a small boy. And I remember my mama telling me, you need a relationship with Jesus. My mama loves me unconditionally. And she was a great person in my life. She's a giving person. But she doesn't understand this whole sold out thing that I've had. That me going to India and me going to Mongolia and stuff. You, you sure you need to, you need to go over there? Yeah, Mama, I, I do. And I know she doesn't understand it, and I, and I know in her heart she's thinking of me, but in another way, isn't that kind of being a little bit of an obstructionist to what God wants to do in your life? Sometimes we pray selfish prayers, and sometimes we do selfish things. Lord, call somebody else's kid to go be a missionary in Africa. Call anybody but some of my family because I don't want to let them go. I've been there. We can be honest this morning. It's Sunday morning. Sometimes we want these noble, awesome things to be done, but just not, just don't take my kids, my grandkids, and move them far away from me. Is that not an offering of a sweet smelling sacrifice to God when we say, God, Whatever you want to do with me and my children and grandchildren, you've got free reign. But see, God never takes away that He doesn't give 
manifold blessings in return for what we offer up to him. But we just sometimes don't trust him enough to really believe that. Another thing, family and friends, as much as we love them, can never come before God. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus' mother and his brothers and some of them come up to him and he was out there teaching and, and they said, hey, your mother and your brothers are out there. They want to talk to you. And he said, you see all these people are sitting here? These people listening to my word? These are my brothers and sisters. These, this is my mother. This is, and Jesus loved his mama. Amen? If anybody loved his mama, Jesus loved his mama, right? He wasn't saying, I don't care about Mary anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm done with her. Jesus loved his mama with all his heart, but he loved the Father's will for his life more than he loved anything else. And the same standard that applied to the very Son of God applies to you and I. The moment we said, I claim you, Lord, as Lord and Savior, that's what we said. The old me is dead and the Christ must be, I must be conformed into the image of my Lord and Savior. And all those things die away. So even family and friends can't come before the will of God in my life. Now we move on to verse 22 and we get a look at the scribes. I call them the fake news media of today. They were supposed to know better. They wrote the scriptures out. You know, I don't get this business, these, and y'all, time out. I have nothing against any of these new modern English translations, nothing. I don't, God didn't send me on this earth to straighten everybody out on which version of the Bible they're reading. I just say read it. If you got one, read it. But at the same time, they, they've told us that some of these newer translations, newer versions, they're not translations, many of them. But anyway, they said, well, we found... We found part of the original that we never knew was there. Do you honestly believe that the further we get away from the originals that they found this pristine copy of the Word of God? The Word of God has been handed down copies upon copies, copies upon copies. That's why it was so important that the scribes took meticulous care to write the Word of God down exactly as it was spoken to the mouth of the people. And what these scribes were responsible for was feeding the people the very Word of God. But here they are. They have followed Jesus down from Jerusalem. They've descended. And here's what they want to do. They make a false accusation right off the bat. He's got, he's got a devil. He's of the devil. Isn't that what goes on today and sadly even in the church? Accusations fly. They don't have to, there doesn't have to be any evidence. You just smear somebody nowadays and, and they run with it, right? If they'll do it to me, they'll do it to you. If they do it to Donald Trump, they'll do it to anybody. They'll do it to all of us, right? See, the devil wants you to believe these lies. There's a strong spirit of delusion in our country right now. And even many in the church today have gotten away from the Word of God being the final authority in church life. And they're basing, 
their, whatever they're believing in and whatever cause they're after on feelings and nothing more. And folks, you, know, you want to know what feelings and emotions and man's thoughts will do? It'll take you straight to perdition. But if you want life, if you want to know the way to eternal life, I guarantee you get in this book. Because this word never changes. Society changes. Culture changes. Clothing changes. Facial hair changes. Long hair, short hair, medium hair, beards, no beards, goatees. All those things, you can change that, but you can't change the unadulterated Word of God. It'll never go away. And it's the standard we're all going to be held to. But see, they were relentlessly pursuing the Lord. It says they came all the way from Jerusalem up there where He was. You see, folks, the devil's never going to quit following you. He's never going to quit pursuing you. There's never going to be a moment when you're going to have total peace. And what do you need to do about it? You need to seek God with all your heart. Every day, you need to get in that book and say, I don't care what the scribes say. I know what the Word of God says. I don't listen to CNN. I don't even listen to Fox. This Bible right here that I have before me is just as current as this morning's newspaper. I don't get my thoughts on society from society. I get them from the Word of God. Because society's not going to be saved. God's calling people out of this godless society who will come apart and be separate. I've got all the news I need right here. They relentlessly pursued them. They spewed out some false accusations. And they called evil good and good evil. Did you notice the transition? He's casting out devils by the power of Beelzebub. Last of all, we're done. We come to Jesus Himself. He says in verse 23, He called them unto Him. He gathered them up around and He taught them in parables. He said unto them in parables. Now you know what a parable is. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. That word para means to lay alongside of, right? You parallel park, <laughs> you know what that is. He took something practical on this earth. He laid it alongside the eternal principles of the Word of God. And he said, let me teach you something here. And he asked the question, all right, how can Satan cast out Satan? I want to say just a few things about Jesus' statement in that one verse. Number one, Jesus calls all of us together. We're here this morning. This is a small multitude. This is a throng. This is a group of people. But Jesus is speaking directly to every individual in this room. Now what you do with it is up to you. The, the multitude won't be responsible for your response. You will be personally accountable for what you hear. Parables make it make us look at ourselves realistically. He's not saying anything earth-shattering here. He's just, it's kind of rhetorical. How can Satan cast out Satan? It's pretty well impossible, isn't it? So it makes us look at ourselves realistically. 
But it also teaches us who we really are. You're either for Jesus or you're against Him. Amen? We've established that fact. You can pretend all you want to, but Jesus knows your heart. God knows your heart. God knows my heart. It really teaches us who we really are. And that's it. We're either with Him or we're against Him. And I want to ask you a question for sure. You know, I don't, I don't take anyone's salvation experience for granted anymore. My wife, my lovely wife there was a Baptist for 31 years. She could talk the lingo. She taught Sunday school. She taught uh, vacation Bible school. She played the piano since she was nine years old. She did a lot of stuff. I thought I was married to a Christian woman. I was pastoring a church in Enterprise, Louisiana. She walks into my study one day and says, I've never been born again. But today, I'm giving my life to Jesus Christ. And it revolutionized our marriage and it revolutionized our life. Because before, I was married to a good person, but I was married to an unregenerate. And we weren't really one in our spirits. But now, if God calls me to Timbuktu, she's coming with me. Not griping. If she knows it's God's will, she says, wherever you go, I will go. And before that time, I couldn't honestly say that. But you see the difference that it makes when you get past religion and you get into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Religion will not save you. Being a member of a church will not save you. Only Jesus can save us. And I pray that everyone here in this room today within the sound of my voice knows that for sure in their hearts. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank You so much for Your Word and I thank You for the power of it. I thank You that it transforms lives, that it quickens us, that God, we have a living hope because of who You are. Lord God, deliver us from the delusion that is quickly overtaking the entire world. There are many that have given up on the faith that are going backward, that are walking away. But God, help us to stand firm. Help us to plant our life on the rock of ages. That will never move, never change. God, thank You so much for this church. I thank You for their years of faithful service. And I pray, God, You will continue to pour Your Spirit out upon us. In the name of Jesus, amen.